Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Exodus. It's good to see you all again on this drizzly evening. Glad that you made it out. Let me pray for us and for our time together, and then we will jump into Exodus. Lord, we thank you for this chance we have to gather once again as your people uh, to study this word that you have given to us. We don't want to take for granted, Lord, that we have uh, such a good word that you have seen fit in your sovereignty to pass down through generations, even through millennia, to deliver to us. Lord, we are humbled by those who have sacrificed their lives so that we might be able to read these words. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us as we read about your faithfulness to generations long past. Lord, tonight we also lift up those in Las Vegas and those affected by this tragedy earlier this week. Um, We do pray, Lord, for your comfort and your presence to rest upon those who are grieving, um, who are dealing with the loss, and just ask God for your, your purposes to be accomplished even in the midst of this. May you be very present near those who are suffering. And Lord, will you help us even as we work through our own emotions as we think through these things and how to respond as a church. Thank you, Lord, that you are an unchanging God and that no matter what life looks like around us, we can trust in you. We pray you would bless now our study of this book of Exodus and that what we do here might be honoring and glorifying to you and to your name. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last time we left off, uh, not quite at Exodus chapter 18, right? If you have your paper from last week, we didn't quite make it through the first side of the paper. So we got quite a bit to cover here at the beginning before we jump into the next section of Exodus chapter 19. I think we can play catch up a little bit and then these next several weeks we're going to be kind of rethinking the Ten Commandments is what I put at the top of your paper for this week. So we will be doing that and there will be a little bit of um, kind of overlap there. I don't think it will be too big of a deal if we don't get to everything on your sheet for tonight. I didn't think we did 16. Yeah, we didn't even do 15. Yeah, yeah. part of 15 but not whole. Okay, so let's start then in chapter 15 uh, where Moses stands along with the people of Israel there on the edge of the Red Sea, right? And we have already read, right, that the people of Israel saw the hosts of the Egyptian army washing up on the seashore. There, verse 30, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They have witnessed with their very eyes the power 
of this God that they serve. And so, verse 15, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They celebrate because of what God has done, and they sing out this incredible song of praise to the Lord. Now, we're not going to walk through this verse by verse, but I do think it's an interesting place for us to just pause and think for a moment. We won't spend very long here, but think for a moment about Hebrew poetry. Okay? If you think about it, uh, it is sort of odd that sometimes the biblical writers chose to write edge to edge, and then sometimes they chose to leave a lot of white space. Right? Actually, they just wrote all the same, and then our translators are the ones who have put them edge to edge or given it a lot of white space. But uh, sometimes it's difficult for us to tell when we're in the presence of poetry in the Bible. Like, in English, we get it. Well, sometimes we get it. We may understand that we're reading poetry. We just are like, I have no idea what I'm reading. Right? But we understand, like, roses are red, violets are blue. It's like, okay, this is a poem. Something's going to rhyme with blue by the time I get to the end. But you're reading in Hebrew and, like, nothing rhymes, right? Which is strange. And so, uh, we spend quite a bit of time in some of my classes at Ozark trying to think through this idea of Hebrew poetry. This, I think, is one of the best examples we have of what is it that makes Hebrew poetry poetry. You have a prose account or a narrative, a story in chapter 14, and then a poetic version of that same story in chapter 15. So here's what I want you to do. Just take maybe one minute and kind of scan through the song, just the song that Moses sings, Moses and the people of Israel sing, verses, let's see, we'll start at verse 1 and run through verse 18. So just kind of scan through that and, and ask the question, how is this different from the story we read in Exodus chapter 14? How does Moses and the people of Israel, how do they talk about this differently? How are they What are they focusing on that's a little bit different? Do we get any new details in the poem that we don't in the story? Okay, any questions? You understand what you're doing? Okay, so take a minute and read through Exodus chapter 15. Okay, I'd like to hear from some of you. What were some of your reflections? Um, They gave all the praise and glory to God. They gave all the praise and glory to God. Good. Once? Twice? Seems like a whole lot, right? They keep kind of coming back to it. Yeah, right. Good. What else? But then they forgot it later. Oh, yeah. They, they forgot it very quickly. Yeah. Good thing we're never like that. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What else did you notice about the differences between the chapters? Yeah. There's a detail in the poetry. Okay. Lots of detail in the poetry. Right? There's a, there's a lot of detail in chapter 15. Is that what you're saying? There's a yeah. whole story of what happened as they went through the, the sea and then how he just brought it back on to the, the people who didn't like, you know, yeah. going to kill them. It's just a whole story. Now, would we all agree that Exodus 15 is very detailed? Yeah. yeah. I don't know how to put it into words, but there's a lot of aggression. Okay. A lot of aggression is what he said. And, uh, like I was telling him, like Moses is up there going, he the man, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Yeah, talking about the greatness of God. 
I want to talk briefly about this idea of uh, descriptive. So we agree that Exodus 15 is very descriptive. Let's imagine that you had never heard the story of the people of Israel passing through the Red Sea. Which chapter would you prefer if you could only choose one and you wanted to know what happened? Which chapter would you prefer? Exodus 14 or Exodus 15? 15? Really? It's the condensed version. You don't have to read so many words. Okay. It's a condensed version. Anybody else think 14? I, I, I would actually prefer 14. For me, it's a little more straightforward. Right? Like it just kind of starts off in Exodus chapter 15. I will sing for the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, I guess that takes all the guesswork out of what happens at the end. Right? Spoil the ending right, up, right off the bat. And I mean... It's not as logical, there's not as tight of a chronological flow, right? Exodus 14, here's what happened at the beginning, and the middle, and then what happened then, and then here's what happened at the end. And Exodus 15 is kind of throwing it all together. In some ways, we get more details in chapter 14, but in other ways, we get way more detail in chapter 15, right? So it's tough to know which one is actually more detailed. Well, the poetry is just focusing on certain pieces of it and kind of taking this maybe one part that was only two or three verses in chapter 14, and we're blowing that up to four, five, six verses and talking the details about that. 14 also is kind of semi-centered on Moses, you know, because Moses did this, you know, and did this and did this, and when he did it, then God acted. Yeah. Uh, Where in 15, it's all God. You you don't, uh, there's nothing about Moses doing anything. It's just God did this, did this, did this. Exactly. It is all about God and the things that he did. Um, notice some of the features of poetry, right? We're talking about God as if he has human body parts, like verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, right? Well, God, maybe God has a nose, I don't know, but I don't think that's what Exodus 15 is trying to tell us, that God has a nose. I think it's just trying to tell us about God's power, right? So there's some of these pieces that we need to recognize. Well, we're in the presence of poetry, And uh, the poets are trying to paint to us a picture that they don't feel like they could do with just normal narrative. We understand this, though, right? Because the songs that we sing in church on Sunday, uh, the songs we hear on the radio, right? Oftentimes these songs have imagery in them that paint pictures for us that express what it's maybe difficult to express otherwise. So, I think this is a great... Uh, section of scripture we can go to to try to understand what's happening when we're talking about Hebrew poetry. Yeah? Um, I think it's interesting in um, verse 11 how it says, uh, Who among the gods is like you? They're referencing like their whole Egyptian past, like they finally know who the true God is. Okay, very good. Yeah. Who is like you? Oh God. There is not any, for sure. Okay. Very good. Any questions about this section before we move on? Yeah, but it has nothing to do with poetry. Okay. Did Pharaoh die in the... And I'm not sure. It doesn't actually say. So, it, it says, The horse and rider he threw into the sea, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Was Pharaoh among them? Maybe, but maybe not. In fact, I think a lot of people think he probably was not among them. But so. in one 
doesn't it say that Pharaoh gathered all of his his best chariots and, and mm -hmm. men and they pursued him? Yes, Pharaoh was for sure with them yeah. when they reached the Red Sea. Yeah. He seems to be the one leading the charge. Now, does that mean he waited on the side as his army went in? I don't know. And may, it could be that they don't even know if he died or, or not, right? Well, a whole bunch of Egyptians died, so yeah. It's hard to tell. It doesn't actually say that Pharaoh himself was among those killed. Now, some people will actually point to different occurrences throughout Egypt's history and say, well, if you notice, this pharaoh seems to, midway through his reign, have suffered a devastating defeat. And his, all of a sudden, his military power was incredibly weakened. So they think, well, maybe that's the pharaoh that, of the Exodus, and he lost all of his troops and was kind of weakened from that point on. I don't know. If you can watch the movie, pharaoh was there. If you watch the movie, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> depending on which movie. Well, all of the movies, right, pharaoh was there. Some of them he died. Some of them he didn't. Okay. And so on this high note, right, we're praising the glory of God. We can't help but sing about how good God is. Next thing we know, Miriam is picking up her tambourine and all the women are dancing around. And sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. All right. Celebration. We're finally free. Everything in the point, everything in Exodus up to this point has been celebrating or has been looking forward to this moment. And now they are celebrating because the yoke of slavery that was so heavy upon them has been broken beyond anybody's expectations. Right? I mean, I don't even know that Moses anticipated that God would defeat the Egyptians so soundly. Right? I, I think they're all just amazed at the extent of salvation that God brought to them. They did nothing to earn it. If anything, they seemed to kind of complain about it during the plagues. They did nothing to earn it, and yet, here they are. It's been given to them. And so, we breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, right? Ah, they finally made it out. They got through. And then, they turned around from the Red Sea, and they started to walk into the wilderness, Right? And then they kept walking, and they kept walking, and they started to get thirsty, right? And thirstier and thirstier. <clears throat> Three days, it says, in the wilderness, and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, verse 23, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. Thanks for that explanation, right? <laughs> now, I think the problem is, it's not just that they were thirsty. The problem is they were thirsty, and then they thought, ah, but there's water here. Right. And so, have you ever had one of those moments, right, where you get your, you really want something or need something, and then you think, oh, I'm finally going to get it. Finally, I'll get a break. And then you get to that point and realize, oh, no, the break's not coming. I'm not getting what I thought. You know, as a kid, nap time's not over yet, right? I thought it would be over and, oh, I have another half an hour. This is terrible. And I think that is what creates the grumbling of the people. 
they were already grumpy. Now they're extra grumpy because they thought they were going to get water, and then they didn't. It's a little bit, um, well, verse 25, and so Moses, verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. In other words, I think it's, I don't know that the water became like sugar water. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it was saying drinkable, right? Potable water. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. I mean, think about the irony here. They have just watched God control an entire sea. And now they begin to doubt about whether or not he can fill their cup. You ever been there? No. All right. Never. Okay. Maybe I've been there before. Most times it's not what God can do we struggle with. It's what God will do. We get mad at him, not because of his weakness, but because he's not willing. We don't think he's willing to supply what we think he should supply. Right. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't fit our timeline. or. Well, I, I have heard sermons, and they say, through the whole sermon, they talk about what God can do. And there's a voice in my mind that says, I don't care what he can do. I know what he can do. I want to know what he will do. And that's often our, our struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wonder if the people at this point are really convinced of what God, if they're really remembering what God can do. Yeah, because they said, you brought us out here to die. Yeah. Like they're blaming you, you did it on purpose. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> instead of seeking help and assistance from God, right, why didn't they say, God, we're thirsty, we need something to drink? Instead, they grumble and complain against Moses. After all, God is the one who has led them to this point where they seem to need a miracle in order to survive. And so if God is the one who has led them there, then why aren't they responding to God? Right? And sometimes I wonder this about my own life. If God is the one who has led me here, then how come I'm grumbling and complaining about where I am instead of saying, God... You got me into this mess, right? If I didn't follow you, I wouldn't have been right here in the middle of all of this. What are you going to do to get me out of it, right? So often I just complain or I grumble about my situation. I get mad at the people around me or at the people in charge, at my circumstances. And instead, I probably need to look to the one who leads my life and guides and directs me, right? The Israelites seemed to have bought into the lie that God was uninterested in them and had no concern for their problems. Nothing could be further from the truth. The same God who heard their cries back in chapter 2, you remember this? God heard the people of Israel, He heard their cries and their groaning, and God knew. That same God is the God who hears them in Exodus chapter 15, and knows that they need something to drink. 
He created their bodies. Of course he knows they need something to drink. Right? And yet they don't cry out to him. And so, <clears throat> verse 26, when God says, I will put on you, if you follow all of these things, I will put on you none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. I want to take a moment and look real quick at Amos, because I think this is a helpful parallel for us. I put this on your paper. Amos chapter 4, verse 10. God is speaking in rather um, harsh tones, perhaps we could say. Um, yeah. Well, he calls his people cows of Bashan. Right. If God calls you a cow, it's probably not a good thing. Okay. He says, in, uh, he's talking about all of the different things. This is later on, much later on in Israel's history, right? He's talking about all the things that he'd done to them in order to try to convince them to turn back to him and yet they hadn't done them. This is what he says in verse 10. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I think the threat almost that God is making in Exodus chapter 15 comes true later on in Israel's history as he does send a disease among them like what was among the Egyptians. And yet they refuse to listen. But God tells them here, I, the Lord, am your healer. The Lord is Rapha. Some of you have heard of Rapha house. It's the Hebrew word for heal, right? He heals. And so, verse 27, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they camped there by the water. Yeah, that sounds nice. People are thinking, this is what we had in mind. Here we go. Right. And so, chapter 16. Now, in chapter 16, we are one month post-Egypt. They are going to arrive at Mount Sinai in about two weeks. Okay? And it says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Is that what your version says? The wilderness of Sin? Sin? Yeah. Desert? Does it name the desert? The, des- the desert of sin? Okay. So I think, you know, we read this and we're like, well, of course. Because look what they do there. Right? But actually this is, you know, in Hebrew, um, you have the word... Sinai, and this seems to be a word related to this, right? Uh, Now, it is pretty ironic that in English, the word sin happens to mean what it does, okay? But in Hebrew, that's just what the word is. Sin, it doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean transgression. We're just taking the words and taking the Hebrew letters and writing them in English, and it spells out sin, okay? So... When I was growing up, I always thought this meant that this is the place where they sinned a lot. Okay? And that may be true, but that's not why it's called this. Okay? It has nothing to do with, with English. It's called the wilderness of sin or the wilderness of sin. And so, verse 2, this is the second time of three 
that the people long for Egypt. They did it back in chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, and then in 17, verse 3. Listen to what they say. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Oh, and then, I just, I just think this is hilarious. I don't know about you, but uh, listen to their dramatic. I don't know if you've ever known anybody with a flair for the dramatic. Um, I've never been told that I had a flair for dramatic, so I don't even know what that's like. My wife's laughing. so I come from a family that tends to have a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. so I get it honestly, okay. But uh, when we... <laughs> listen to how they complain, right? Oh, that we would have died in the land of Egypt. And then listen to how they remember their slavery. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. <laughs> this image, right, of just like, oh yeah, that was a life. Wasn't it awesome in Egypt? Oh yeah, it was so good just sitting there. We just stick our fork into the meat pot and pull out meat to our mouth as much as we wanted. Bread by the handful. No, you were slaves, guys, okay? You worked seven days a week. You didn't have any straw. You had to go find it on your own. You were miserable. You were dying. This was terrible. Generally, everybody agreed upon this. And yet now, as they reflect upon their experience here out in the wilderness, wandering around, they look back and grass is always greener on the other side, right? And they think about this wonderful life that they had. And he says, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The hardship of the desert creates nostalgia for the house of slavery. But you know, after going there and being in the wilderness and sitting for about two hours, I can see where they feel. Okay, all right. So you feel it, right? Can you not see? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it was hot. Yeah. There would have been no water. I didn't last 30 minutes without a drink. I know. It was, it was horrible. It was yeah. not what I thought that the, the uh, wilderness would be like. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It seems, it, I, I would agree, it does seem pretty miserable. Um, what were you going to say? Yeah. When they were in Egypt, God said, your cries have risen up to me. It's a lot of, when he makes a statement like that, there's a lot of cries. They've forgotten all the crying that they did. Yeah. And instead they cry now, and these are reaching God as well, right? <laughs> I always think, think of my grandparents talking about the good old days, and I go, you guys went to the bathroom outside. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. The catalogs. Yeah. We call that like selective memory, right? I'm just going to remember... I'm just going to remember the good things. <laughs> oh, my. And so the people are miserable. I put on your paper there, our natural desires, thirst and hunger, can quickly reveal our heart and true motives. It's so true, isn't it? That's why I think fasting is a spiritual discipline. Because sometimes I think I'm doing pretty good until I start fasting. And like, you know, four hours in, I'm hungry, right? And whatever, however spiritual I felt, you know, on hour one seems to have <laughs> flown away, right? Virtue has departed and I just want a cheeseburger, right? 
We don't see God get angry here, but I mean, the reality is he may have been angry with the people. Psalm 78 verses 18 through 22 seem to reference this event and God's anger. Um, perhaps in the light of Israel not having any food, they should have exercised some self-restraint. Again, God is the one who created their bodies. He knows that they are hungry. He just wants them to turn to Him. Okay, Let's not forget what we talked about a few weeks ago in the, when we were talking about the Passover. Right, God is taking this people who is, I think, thoroughly Egyptian in their worldview. And he is bringing them out and saying, let me give to you a new worldview. You are a new people who will think and act differently. So this is part of the reason that he reorients their entire calendar. This will be for you the first of all months. Here's actually your major festival that you're going to celebrate every single year. He's giving them a new identity But now, he's providing these opportunities for them to rethink the way that they see the world, right? What do you do when you're hungry? What do you do when you're thirsty? Well, you turn to the God who literally parted the seas in front of you in order to rescue you. You turn to a God who is powerful like that. You turn to the God who is able to see the blood on the door and guard and protect your house so that you didn't die along with the rest of the Egyptians. You turn to that God, right? But that's not what the people do. Instead, they grumble and they complain. They tell Moses how terrible life is. And so the people think, well, you just brought us out here in order to kill us. Which is crazy, right? I mean, really? You think God would bring you out into the wilderness? God went through all of that just to kill you out in the desert? Probably not. Okay. And so the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. It will actually rain down, right? And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The emphasis, I think, in the, in the original language is on the bread for each day. There will be bread for every day, except as we're going to read here in a minute, on the Sabbath. They don't get any bread on the Sabbath. They and, even do that right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, they screwed that up as well, right? Give us the but, day our daily bread. Yes. Uh, Nahum Sarna notes in his commentary, the insecurity of the people's day-to-day existence, wholly dependent on this unfamiliar substance, heightens their consciousness of absolute reliance upon God's goodness. They have to rely on God's goodness if he's going to give them bread day by day. He could have just given them bread once a week. Right? He could have given them once a month. But instead... God chose to give them something every day. And so, every morning they'd wake up and they'd have to get the bread for that day. Right? The purpose seems to center, at least as what God says, it seems to center on Him testing Israel. The purpose 
He says, whether they will walk in my law or not. We're going to talk quite a bit about this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for law here is Torah. I don't think Torah means law like we think of law. I think maybe a better description would be instruction. And so to see whether they will walk in my instruction or not. Will they choose to listen to me and let me form and shape their ideas? And so this stuff that God is going to give them occurs every single day. You mentioned the Lord's Prayer, and I think, I think there's a definite connection here, right? Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Now, there's some question about what that word daily means. Um, does that mean the bread for today? That it could actually mean tomorrow bread. Either way, I think it's probably a refer- reference to what happened in the wilderness, right? Either it's the bread for today, bread for today, or it's like the bread that they gathered before the Sabbath. They had to gather twice as much. You gather today's bread and tomorrow's bread, trusting that when tomorrow comes and there's no bread on the ground, that today's bread is going to be enough. I think what Jesus is saying, give us today our daily bread. He's, he's pushing us to trust God like the Israelites were being pushed to trust God, to believe in Him that He would provide their sustenance on a regular and daily basis. And so, verse 5, we just mentioned this, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Some people think that meant that they gathered the same amount and yet it ended up being twice as much. I'm not sure. Uh, verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And then they take it a little bit personally, right? For what are we that you grumble against us? Then Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And so, God basically then in the evening sends quail out to cover the camp. This is a one-time event. It will happen, they'll get uh, quail later. Uh, But this is not something that happened every day. This was a one-time event, quail in the evening. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. So imagine, it looked like frost, and it covered the whole ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Huh? So, I don't think they had any idea what this was. Um, the, so, the Hebrew word, um, I'm teaching Hebrew, this, Hebrew 1 this semester, and we're, we were just learning this today. The Hebrew word for what, like the question, what, is ma. What ma? Right, so, ma means what? Well, in older Hebrew, uh, it probably was originally man. So, not just ma, but man. So, man. So, they looked at it and they were like, man? On? They had no idea what it was, right? They're just asking a question, mon. And then uh, the Septuagint takes that and, and they translate that because they weren't quite sure what to do with this. I think that was literally the question they asked, what? And then the Septuagint translates that as mon na. 
And so that's where we get the word manna from. Uh, but it's basically them just asking the question, what is it? I don't know. Do you know what it is? No, I don't know. What is it? Everyone just kept asking, what is it? And so the name became, what is it? What's for breakfast? What is it? That's what's for breakfast today, right? And so, <coughs> uh, actually, yeah, so it's only in Exodus 16 that Septuagint actually has man. Everywhere else it has mana, manna. And so, Moses said to them, well, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, some people think uh, there's an insect in the Middle East, in the wilderness, in the desert. And this insect, how can we say this nicely, uh, produces, this insect produces a white substance, okay, um, that in some cases could be edible and could in fact look like this. So they say, it actually wasn't, you know, God doing this. It was, you know, this, these insects producing that, and that's what they saw. Okay, so how? So they did it all of a sudden, every day for 40 years, except on the Sabbath. So the insects took a day off every week, right? <laughs> and they didn't do it. Uh, and then as soon as they enter into the land, they stop producing, apparently. Uh, so... Okay, if you want to say that it, that's an insect, then God used some powerful insect-controlling powers, right, to provide enough insect dung for the people to eat. I don't think it was insect dung, okay? I think this was something that God provided from heaven, uh, and it was this white substance. They had never seen it before, is what it certainly seems like. I don't think this is something they were familiar with. I think it's something they had never seen before. God gave it to them, as a way to provide for what they need. And so, uh, it describes there what happened as they went out and gathered some of these things. Morning by morning, verse 21, they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. That is, like the dew melts, or uh, the frost melts right when the sun comes up. So also, the dew that was like the manna melted away. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, maybe not. I've got lots of problems with the bug poop idea. So, yeah. Well, they get it this evening before, and then there's another case in Numbers, right, where they. I've read that many times. I just took for granted that was more plentiful than that. I see. Yeah. No, I don't think it was. I think it was kind of a one-time thing, and then later on they get quail, and he says, "I'm going to give you so much." You're going to eat it until it's coming out your nose. Yeah. And then he kills some of them while the meat's, it says, while the meat was still between their teeth. It's <laughs> kind of a terrible image. And so on the sixth day, then we get what happened on the, on, the, on the sixth and seventh day, right? They gather twice as much bread, two omers each. Um, and so, and then notice it says, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. So this is part of the reason that some people think they actually just went out and gathered their normal amount and then when they got back, suddenly they had twice as much. So it, it's, you can see what it says here. It seems like they're a little bit confused as to what's happened. Like, how, wait, how is this possible? And then he says, no, no, tomorrow is a solemn rest. There it is. 
the first occurrence, I think, of this idea of Sabbath and resting, at least in the book of Exodus. A solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So you go ahead and make everything ahead of time. You set it aside. And then tomorrow, that's what you eat. So, verse 26, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. There are elements here of natural and supernatural, in the ordinary and in the unusual. Surely the miracle is in God's supernatural, sovereign orchestrating of the situation. He provides for them, and then He creates this moment where He does not provide for them, because He has provided double on the day before. God works in powerful manifestations. God parts the Red Sea. God sends plagues on the land of Egypt. But God is also concerned about the daily distribution of bread. About making sure that His people get water. Okay? Things are not too, too big or too small for God. We see God acting here in in supernatural ways that blow our minds, and then taking care of these small needs that seem so basic, right? God takes care of it all. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, um, well, verse 27 is our context, right? On the seventh day, just like you were saying, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Guys, we told you. Don't go out and gather on the seventh day. Sounds like the people now. Yeah. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Interesting choice of words, right? My Torah, right? Well, all he's told him is instruction on what to do about the, the bread. And yet he calls even that his instruction. He's giving them a framework for what they're supposed to do. And so he tells them, Remain in your place. Don't go out. I don't know how I can make this any clearer clearer for you guys. Stay where you are. Don't go out. There's no bread. Right? So he makes them rest. He forces them to rest on the Sabbath. It wasn't natural for them. I I think we maybe understand this, right? He tried to take Sabbath. Man. I've gotten better about resting. But it's hard for me. Because I rest, and then I start thinking about all that other stuff that i got to do. Well, now that I'm not doing some of those other things, oh, I, I could probably do this, and this, and this, and this. right? And it's hard for me to stop and to rest. If you're used to working seven days a week, I can imagine it's a little bit difficult to stop and allow yourself to rest. And yet God says, in our, in our nation, and among our people, we will be a people who rest on the seventh day. And I think there's a theological purpose to it, which we're going to understand once we get to Exodus chapter 20. Quickly then, Exodus chapter 17, water from the rock. As they move on throughout the wilderness, once again they're thirsty, right? They complain again to Moses, give us something to drink. And so then, verse 6, God tells them, tells him, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. 
Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called that place the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Wish we had more time to spend here, uh, but we're just going to kind of quickly look at this. It seems pretty straightforward, at least in the Old Testament. Moses strikes the rock and water comes out. Right? Yes? Yes. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 10 and we think, Paul, we understood the Old Testament. What are you doing to us, brother? Right? 1 Corinthians 10, listen to what he says. I don't want you to be unawares, brother, that our fathers were all under the crowd, all passed through the sea. Uh, verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, and all drank the spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. And then he just moves on. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And I want to be like, time out. What? The rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So I think everyone pretty much agrees this is the passage that Paul is talking about. But it doesn't seem to me that there's a rock following them around. And it doesn't seem like Jesus is here. I mean, maybe that's like verse five and a half or something, and they left that out of my Bible, but I don't see that. So what is Paul doing? Do you understand how this is a little bit strange? Yes? Are we just afraid to say that sometimes what Paul does seems strange to us? I'll say that. I think he's right, okay, no matter what he does. If, if, if I've got a problem with Paul, the problem is with me, okay. I'll admit that, but sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what exactly he's doing or how he's using this. Okay. Is he saying Christ is a living water? Well, perhaps, but he seems to be talking about it like this is what happened back then, that even then it was Christ. And so, but the, another piece of this is the rock that followed them. That's strange. Now, there does seem to be, and I wish we could talk more time, spend more time talking about this. Um, there does seem to be a tradition of Jewish exegesis that says the rock actually followed them around in the wilderness. It's kind of a funny image, right? So it's like you have this boulder that just kind of like drags along behind all of the people, right? And that water comes out of it. Um, you, or maybe runs ahead of them, yeah. Uh, Numbers 21, verses 16 through 18, you have the people of Israel singing this song, Spring Up, O Well. Right? They seem to sing this song to the rock, which is a little bit strange. And some people look at that and say, well, it seems like then the rock was not just a one-time thing. I mean, how did they have water all throughout the wilderness? There were certain times where they didn't. But how did they have water all throughout the wilderness? The text actually doesn't say that the rock did not follow them. So that's a possibility, okay? But notice what Paul also says. He says, the spiritual rock. So he adds the word spiritual in there, which I think is important for us to understand. But here's here's where I kind of land on this. The word rock 
is not found a whole lot in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's found a little bit here. And then several times in Deuteronomy it occurs. Five times, though, it occurs in Moses' song in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Listen to this. Um, I just want to read a few of these for you. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. This is what Moses says. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Verse 15. uh, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Okay. Verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And then verse 30. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. When Moses uses the word rock in Deuteronomy 32, who is he talking about? He's talking about God. Right? And surely this, this image connects with us. I mean, David uses it so often in the Psalms that we understand that God is our rock. But I, I wonder if Paul is not even looking back to Moses' song, okay, and saying, no, it's not that the, it was just the rock that provided them water. God himself was the rock for the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, right? And so when Paul says um, the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, I wonder if he's not kind of suggesting God was with them every stage through the wilderness. Maybe an actual rock followed them, maybe not. But as we all know, Jesus, the Messiah, is in fact God, right? So it's not too much of a stretch then for, I think, Paul to say Jesus is God or Jesus is the rock just like God is the rock. Does this make sense? Okay. To me, this is one of those strange pieces. Um, Maybe you didn't even know it was there, but it's a strange piece and we have to wrestle with it somehow. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, and so next we read about the battle with the Amalekites. As they move on from there, it seems like um, Amalek, the army of Amalek, cut down some of the stragglers who were going behind. They probably saw Israel as encroaching on their territory. And God is very angry with them. His vengeance continues against them into 1 Samuel chapter 15, actually. And so Joshua goes and leads the army into battle. And this is the place, right, where they hold up. Uh, As long as Moses' hands are raised, then they win the battle. And when his hands start to fall, then they start to lose. And so they prop up his hands and hold it up so that they'll continue to win. And I think in the end, it is very clear to all the people that God's power is that which makes them overcome even their 
enemies. Chapter 18, then, we have uh, this kind of intermission before we get to Exodus chapter 19 and really the beginning of the law. Here, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to visit Moses. And as he comes, he is impressed and in awe of what he sees. I think this is much like the Queen of Sheba we see later on, right? Or Naaman the leper. He has heard the rumor of what God has done. But now he comes and he sees it himself. In some ways, I think he's a parallel with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. You remember him? We meet Melchizedek immediately after a battle and right before God's covenant is made with his person, Abraham. Now we meet Jethro just after a battle and right before he begins his covenant in Exodus chapter 19. And so Jethro brings his wisdom to the table and says to Moses, Listen, buddy, you're wearing yourself out. See, anyone who has a problem comes and brings it to Moses and then Moses has to be the one to answer everybody and From morning to night, he's standing up and delivering decision after decision after decision. And he says, this is never going to last. You're going to burn yourself out pretty quickly. And so he advises that they they set leaders all throughout the land of Israel. It's a delegation of leadership, even wisdom, to other people. Previously, Moses had just received direct oracles from God. But now, he would teach others, and perhaps God is going to teach others to discern the truth. Right, So we have, instead of just Moses now, we also have these elders, these leaders among the people of Israel who will be able to discern and listen to these things. Okay, And with that, we arrive at Exodus chapter 19. We have 15 minutes left to do what we have on our agenda for tonight. Okay. So, on your new piece of paper, uh, we'll move past the introduction and talk about the setting of the Ten Commandments. I've titled this, Rethinking the Ten Commandments, Part 1. We're going to spend a few, several weeks here, actually, um, because I think this is so foundational for us to understand what's actually happening in what we would call the law section of the Old Testament. These, these commandments, these words given here, have had an incredible impact on culture, cultures throughout the world for millennia, right? Perhaps we could even say more than any other law code, this text has formed and shaped other cultures throughout the world. None of this would have happened if Moses hadn't climbed that mountain and listened to what God chose to say. And so, a few things to remember as we move into Exodus chapter 19. First of all, I've given you uh, something, I, I don't know if you need to, you know, maybe you need to write that on a note card and put it on your mirror or something. It's such a profound statement, put there on your, under the setting of the Ten Commandments. Remember, Exodus 19 comes after Exodus 1 through 18. It's a powerful word, right? Yes, of course it does, because 19 follows 18 in most every numbering scheme. But this is not what I mean. When we get to Exodus chapter 19, don't forget where we've been. Okay? What happened in Exodus chapter 1? Where were the people of Israel? 
slaves in Egypt. What hope did they have? None. Exodus chapter 2. What happens at the end of Exodus chapter 2? Do you remember? God hears. God knows. So Exodus chapter 3, what does God do? Remember this? Yeah, burning bush, right? He appears to Moses. Exodus chapter 3 and 4, go and bring my people here, back here to the mountain. Exodus chapter 5, they appear before Pharaoh. Well, the end of Exodus chapter 4, don't forget this. They come and tell the people of Israel and they fall down and worship. They're so thankful that God is going to save them. Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and he says, no way, you're getting out of here. No way. In fact, you're making the people slack off. It's so, they send, uh, they send Moses and Aaron away and they make everybody's job harder and all of the Israelites hate them. They all hate Moses and Aaron. Life gets so difficult in Exodus chapter 5 that by the end of it, Moses is crying out to God himself. Why would you even send me here? What has happened in Exodus chapter 1 through 5? What good thing has any single person done to earn God's favor? Anything? The midwives were kind of cool, right? But besides that, two midwives. Doesn't seem to be much else, right? And yet God still says in Exodus chapter 6, no, I'm still going to do it. This hasn't changed. Exodus chapter 7, then Moses goes and the ten plagues begin. And plague after plague after plague after plague, God strikes the people of Egypt and Pharaoh with all of these devastating plagues. Exodus chapter 12, he says, I'm going to send one final plague, then he's going to let you go. But here's, here's what I want you to do so make sure that you're not affected. What did the people of Israel do to earn God saving them from the plague on the firstborn? What amazing act did they accomplish? What merit did they show in order to earn the salvation from the plague of the firstborn? Nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And God said, I'm going I'm to tell you how, how to do this. If you put blood on the door, you will survive. Nothing but God's grace. So they do it, they obey, because they want to save their lives, Right? pretty good motivator, then it works, right? All of, their, all of uh, the firstborn survive. That very night, they're driven out of the land of Egypt. They even get gold and jewelry from all of their neighbors. They leave Egypt as free people and rich free people. What did they do to earn it? If you haven't learned by now, the answer is nothing. Right? Yeah. Then they go into the wilderness there they start to wander around, and at first they're happy, right? Hey, we made it out of the land of Egypt. We're free. But then they turn around and see a sea on one side and Pharaoh's army coming on the other. And what do they say? Oh, God, who has saved us from the hand of Pharaoh, we trust you. No, right? Why do you bring us out here where there are no graves in Egypt? What did they do to deserve God's rescuing them at the, at the Red Sea? Nothing. They have a nice moment at the beginning of Exodus chapter 15. 
right? Where they sing and praise God. But then they turn right around and begin to complain and grumble again. And yet God sends them water. Then God sends them quail and bread and water. He saves them from the hand of the Amalekites. They could have been slaughtered. But because Moses' hands are up, Joshua prevails. Okay? By the time we get to Exodus chapter 19, what have the Israelites done to earn their salvation? Nothing. We must never forget that. This is the context in which the Ten Commandments are given to us. Exodus chapter 19 is given to us. Okay? They have done no good thing in order to deserve this. And yet God has chosen out of His great mercy and compassion and kindness to extend them to this. To extend this to them. Many people see this as the giving of the law. In other words, do this, don't do this, do this and you'll die, do this and you won't die. I'm not sure that's the best way to see it. The narrative frames all of it in terms of a covenant. In fact, that's the word that God seems to use. A covenant is an agreement, a pact between two parties. Okay? And in what we're about to read, there is no outright law. Okay? These are simply stipulations to covenant membership. Okay? In some ways, the closest connection we have, I think, to this would be like a marriage. Okay? A marriage covenant binds two parties together. So all of those years ago, 13 years ago now, right? 13. 13 years ago, when I stood out, we got married in my wife's grandparents' backyard. As we stood there, they live in Arizona. It's a beautiful backyard, beautiful day. So we stood there in front of all those people, and I made my commitment to my wife. Did I say, man, I hate that I have to be faithful to you even when you're sick. I mean, does anyone like being around people when they're sick? It's pretty miserable, right? But I guess, I guess, because I want to be your husband, I'll accept that part of it too. I'd really like to just be faithful to you when we're rich, but I guess if you twist my arm, when I'm poor as well. I guess I'll be faithful to you, right? No. Nobody does that on their wedding day. You make a commitment because it is your joy. It was the greatest, one of the greatest joys of my life to stand there on my wedding day and commit myself to my wife, right? That's what marriage is. When we think about this as law, we think of it as a list of do's and don'ts. But if we think about this as a marriage, as a covenant, then I think we're more in line with what God is trying to suggest to us here. Right? God is not trying to give Israel a list of do's and don'ts to force them into some sort of legal straitjacket. Instead, I think He is offering them His hand in marriage. He is offering them this covenant. Will you choose to accept my offer of love to you? Now, what does that mean? Well, obviously, just like we say our marriage vows, it means I am agreeing to commit to something. Okay? 
But those are not a list of strict rules to follow. That is simply a sign, and it's not even an exhaustive sign, right? It's just, it's just a symbol or a sign of the extent of my love for my wife. I don't think any other nation had anything like this, what God is preparing to do to Israel here. In fact, I wrote on your paper here, Yahweh versus the gods of the nations. Other nations um, had several layers of gods. You had the cosmic gods, and then you had national gods. You had patron or family gods, and then you had these ancestral gods. So you had all these different kind of layers of gods that controlled different aspects of your life. And I put there on, um, on your paper, it's called Lulul Belnemeki. This is the poem of the righteous sufferer. It's a really sad poem from the ancient Near East that describes what the worshiper, uh, describes the process that this worshiper is going through as he tries to wrestle with why he suffers. Okay? Listen to some of these things that he says. I survived to the next year. The appointed time passed. As I turned around, it was more and more terrible. My ill luck was on the increase. I could find no good fortune. I called to my God, but he did not show me his face. So he switches, right? That God's not working, so I'll try another. I prayed to my goddess, but she did not raise her head. The diviner with his inspection did not get to the bottom of it, so he's going to someone and paying them to fix his problem for him, and they can't figure out what's wrong. Nor did the dream priest with his incense clear up my case. I beseeched the dream spirit, but it did not enlighten me. The incantation priest with its ritual did not appease the divine wrath against me. What bizarre actions were everywhere? I looked behind. There was persecution, trouble. And then he describes... What his life is like. It's like one who has not made libations to his God. Apparently, that's what you were supposed to do. Nor with the food offering invoked his goddess, who is not wont to prostrate himself, nor has been seen to bow down. From whose mouth there has been no issue of prayer or supplication. Someone who has skipped holy days and despised festivals, who has been neglectful and scorned the God's rights, who has not taught his people reverence and worship, who has not invoked his God beating his food offering. He goes on and lists all of these things. And basically he says, I've done all of these things, and yet I'm still suffering. I can't figure it out. I must have done something wrong. That's the only explanation. And I can't figure out why I'm suffering. He has no clue what his God or God's want. And so, he goes to incredible lengths just to try to figure it out. In light of this, how do you think this prayer, the righteous sufferer here, how do you think he would feel about a law like Exodus chapter 19, 20, 21, 22, like the book of Leviticus? How do you think he would feel about something like this? I think he'd be thankful. In fact, listen to what, listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll end with this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Let's start in verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. Listen to what he says. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great 
nation is a wise and understanding people. And then listen to what he says in verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and laws so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law was not a legal straitjacket that Moses put on the people of Israel. The law was God's gracious gift to the people to help them understand this is what God wants. And this is what life looks like when you're doing well with God. No one in the ancient Near East had anything like this. They just had to figure it out on their own. And God says, I will tell you exactly what you have to do. I'll tell you exactly how you should behave when you enter into my presence. And if you do these things, you will live. Moses reflects on all of this and says, there's no one who has anything like this good law that God has given to us. Not because we earned it, but only because of His grace. And it's that piece of grace that I really want us to focus on as we move into the rest of the Ten Commandments. All right. That's it for tonight. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.